1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray again. Lord, we want to do your will. We want to know your will. God, we long for this eternal life, abiding forever in relationship with God. We long for intimacy with you, Lord. We long for communion with you, God. We long for peace and joy in your presence. And so we look to your word. Lord, what else shall we turn to but your word to your people and ask that you speak to us today. Lead your people, God, in worship. Lead your people in obedience to you. Lead your people in the way of life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I heard a saying early on when I was a kid. It was something that my dad used to say, and it's always stuck with me. He said, everything in life is either a sin, fattening, or has been known to cause cancer in lab rats. (laughs) It's silly, but it feels true sometimes. Doesn't it feel sometimes living in this world that we're, we're darned if we do and we're darned if we don't? Take food, for instance. I love food. Right? But you can either eat whatever you want and be happy every time you eat and be very unhealthy, or you can pursue health, be miserable every time you eat with your plant-based proteins and salad with the dressing on the side, why would you take the only good thing about a salad and put it on a different, in a different dish? Unless that salad is a Cobb salad. I got to tell you, the Cobb salad is a salad for the meat eater. Cobb salad's good stuff. You can make yourself miserable by keeping delicious things from yourself, or you can make yourself sick by keeping nothing from yourself. So then maybe the answer is all things in moderation. Right? All things in moderation. Really? <laughs> all things? Do you know that the FDA allows a certain amount of animal feces and maggots in produce? All things in moderation. Right? What about good things? Good things that shouldn't be moderated, right? Shouldn't be reduced. The the presence of God, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, moderation. No, give it all. Give it all to me. Give me your presence. Moses said, God, show me your glory. God, we want everything you have for us. See, it's difficult to find balance in a world where something is good until it isn't. It seems as though we can go so far in one area and it's okay, and then a little bit further and you shipwreck your life. We talked about food, but what about something like alcohol? Right? Is alcohol a good thing or a bad thing? Depends on how it's used or abused. 
Is it a sin? Not necessarily. Is it dangerous? Absolutely. Right? A little too much in one time or over the course of a life, and it will shipwreck your life, your family, your career. It's absolutely dangerous. People have lost so much because of this thing that they say, this isn't bad until it is. And they're picking up the pieces of their lives. What about the world? Is the world a good thing or is the world a bad thing? I can argue both sides from scripture. Let's say one and the other. Our text today certainly argues that the world promotes all sorts of evils. And other texts praise the way creation glorifies God as our call to worship is in, in Psalm 19. The heavens, the works of his hands declare his handiwork. The whole world is full of his glory. See, there's a biblical tension when it comes to the world and we don't like tension. Human beings don't like tension. We want things to be clear and simple and easy to follow. And so throughout time, different people have tried to resolve this tension either by condemning the material world and saying that the material world is only bad all the time and abstaining then, therefore, from its pleasures or other people who will throw themselves into the pleasures of this world, throwing out the concept of excess and sin and and running headlong into hedonism, just the pursuit of pleasure at all cost. And both of these mentalities have been seen in the Christian church. Both of them have affected God's people, whether the monastic movements who separated themselves from the world in order to pursue the spiritual world, I'm not throwing all monastic movements under the bus, but those who try to separate themselves from the world, take themselves out of the world. To to them, Jesus says, no, I've not called you out of the world. I've called you to be in the world, but not of the world. There are other groups who will say that they believe that their sins are forgiven and so they can sin as much as they like without fear. And they just run headlong into the pleasures of the flesh. But both of these groups whether they identify the material world as evil or they identify all of the pleasures in the world as good, both of these groups have, have had influence in the church to whom John is writing. The, the, the church that first received the letter that we're reading. The most prominent group were associated with an ideology called Gnosticism. Gnostics... Uh, rejected the material world, all of the material world as evil, and they received the spiritual world as good. And so the goal of the Gnostic movement was to reject the physical world, to abstain from its pleasures in order to attain a higher spiritual enlightenment or knowledge. That's where the word Gnostic or the word knowledge comes from. It comes from the word Gnostic. If you've ever wondered why the word knowledge or know begins with a K, it's because Gnosticism in the Greek language begin with its version of a G. It's gnosis, gnowledge, right? The more you know. They attain a higher spiritual enlightenment, knowledge through rejecting the physical world. And so they lived an ascetic life void of worldly pleasures. And so there were other groups in the church that reacted against this 
by seeking pleasure. And we see both temptations in the world today. We see both temptations in the church today. We see both temptations in our hearts today. And so I'll ask the question again, what is it? Is the world good or is the world bad? Yes. The world was made good. God made all things and said that it was good. It was good. It was good. Then he made humanity and he said it was very good. Isn't it weird that our culture looks at the world still and says that the world is good, 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 good. And then we look at humanity and we say the world is not good. It's the other way around. That when God made people, he said it's very good. So the world was made good. The material world, the spiritual world, all of it was made good. And all of it is fallen. All of it is affected by sin. And so in light of this tension, the world that is good, the world that is fallen, we read John's commands here in this text to not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. And when at first it might have seemed straightforward enough, it's really not. There's tension and it gets worse. John here says, do not love the world. But in his gospel, in a very famous passage, in chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus says God loves the world. So you, Christian, don't love the world. But God loves the world. What in the world is going on? What is happening here? If God loves the world, why shouldn't I love the world? Why shouldn't you love the world? Or is there a difference between the way we love the world and the way God loves the world. And so the key to understanding what John means when he refers to the world, uh, the key is to understand what John means when he refers to the world and everything in it. How should we interact with the world around us? We need to start by understanding that we live in a world of delights. We live in a world of delights. God made a good world and filled it with pleasurable things. The Gnostics are wrong. The world is not inherently evil. Matter is not inherently evil. The world was made for God's glory and for the good of his human image bearers. The first humans were supposed to enjoy the things that God made and rejoice in the one who had made them. Contrary to popular belief, uh, pleasure was not Satan's idea. It's not like God made like a, a, a gray, dreary world and put the human beings in the world and said, don't have any fun. And then Satan came with like confetti cannons and music and, 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 and said, hey, you know, like introduced pleasure and fun and joy into the world. That's not what happened. God made a paradise. With, full of all good things and told the humans, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. I've given it all to you to eat and to enjoy. It's all for you. Pleasure is not Satan's invention. The goodness in creation was to be a signpost. As the humans enjoyed God's goodness in creation, it pointed them to the goodness of the one who made it for them. Like a gift lovingly given. Right? The gift is not the goal, but the celebration of love with the one who gave it. 
That's every parent's hope when they give a gift to the child, that they would see through the gift and see the one who is giving it to them. But so often it's like, thanks, and then they run off and play with it. As a parent, it's like, I wanted a hug at least. It's supposed to point to the celebration of love with the one who gave it. And so in God's love, he gave to us the goodness and creation, the beauty and sunshine and food and drink and companionship and recreation. All of these things are good and meant to be enjoyed. Even the things that our flesh and our eyes and our lives crave are often good things. See, these are the categories that John gives us. Right? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so even in those desires, we can desire good things, but there are distortions of what God has given. And though there are distortions, though we use those things oftentimes inappropriately, the original gift is good. Let's take the desires of the flesh. Now this word flesh shows up many times throughout scripture, oftentimes in the things that John writes and other places when the apostle Paul writes. And when the apostle Paul talks about flesh, the apostle Paul uses that word flesh almost completely in a negative light, that it is always only related to your sinful desires, your flesh is the sinful desires of an unredeemed you. That's how Paul uses the word flesh. And oftentimes we're more familiar with Paul's writings than we are John's writings. And so we come to John and we read the desires of of the flesh and we only think sinister things. But that's not the way John uses the word flesh. John uses the word flesh to refer to your physical body. Your flesh, your, 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 your physical self. And so the desire to care for your flesh, the desire to feed your flesh, the desire to sustain your human body is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to care for yourself. Uh, uh, you know, I, I am all for... Oh gosh, this is going to make people angry. I am all for caring for yourself, but when people talk about self-care, sometimes I'm like, isn't that a little indulgent? Is it, it, are, are we not supposed to work? Are we not supposed to labor? Yes, care for yourself. Don't run yourself into the ground. If you're not caring for yourself, then you have nothing to give those around you. I'm not throwing the whole thing under the bus. But when people are like taking these luxurious vacations for months at a time across the world, like hashtag self-care, like I guess I'm doomed to die young because I can't do that. It's not wrong to care for your body. It's not wrong to care for yourself, to feed yourself, to be hydrated, to get enough sleep. That's not wrong. That is a desire that your human body has. What about the desires of the eyes, right? Paul, uh, John talks about the desires of the eyes. When we look at a world full of beauty and order and grandeur, we're directed to gaze upon the God who is the same. God is beautiful. 
He's wise, he's grand, he's glorious. John is not telling you is not telling you not to take trips to beautiful places in the world and feast your eyes on the goodness to to you know the there's a difference between looking at the Grand Canyon on a postcard and looking at it with your feet on the edge. Took my kids to the Grand Canyon a little over a, a year ago. And I remember even as I was driving there, I was like, I've seen pictures. Like how, how cool could this place really, like is it really different than the pictures? It's different than the pictures. <laughs> it's really cool. I remember the first time going to museums in Italy and being like, I've seen pictures of David. And like standing there and going, oh my gosh, a dude carved that? It's amazing, right? John's not telling you, don't go see beautiful things. Don't, don't take in the beautiful world through your eyes. That's not what he's saying, okay? It can be a good thing to delight ourselves with beautiful things, And then John talks about the pride of life. This is taking pleasure in the life that you have, right? The works of your hands, the successes that you've experienced. Ecclesiastes literally says that it's, that's not bad. In fact, he says it's the only thing we have, our toil under the sun, to enjoy our toil, to enjoy what we can do, right? This, this, Satisfaction, you know the satisfaction after a, a, a job well done? John's not saying, don't be happy. Don't you be content. You be miserable at the work that you've done. It's pathetic. That's not what John's saying. That's not what he's saying. See, we live in a world of delights. See, there are places in the world where it would be difficult to communicate how full of delight the world is. But you know how beautiful the world is because you live in Carpinteria. It's easy. It's easy to look around and say, this world is beautiful. Maybe, maybe you live in Ventura. It's still beautiful. <laughs> Santa Barbara, it's still beautiful. Right? We live in, it's beautiful. See, it's difficult some places to try to convince people that the world is beautiful, but not here. We're at the center of it all. This is the most beautiful place in the world. Hands down. We're surrounded by prosperity. We're surrounded by good things and beautiful things. No, it's easy to convince people in Carpinteria that we live in a beautiful world. What's more difficult to communicate is why we should not absolutely give ourselves to every pleasure available. Okay, so the world is full of delights. Yes, but don't give yourself to every pleasure available. Why? Why not? So the reason is that though we live in a world of delights, we also live in a world of deception. We live in a world of deception. The things we desire can be deceiving. And I believe that John's use of the, desi- uh, of the, the phrases desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life in this text are very intentional because they remind us of the first sin in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. This text has as its backdrop the fall of humanity when Satan deceived 
the humans and ushered sin and sorrow into the world that God had made. See, the first humans lived in a paradise. They lived in a world full of good and beautiful things and in the presence of God. And then the serpent crept in to deceive God's people. So we typically think of Satan's temptation as this like luring them to eat, like eat it, you want it. It's so good for you, like eat it. That's not what he does. Never once does Satan tell them to eat. He just calls into question God's command not to eat. So the first question he asks is interesting. He says, did God say not to eat any fruit of the garden? And the astute reader will go, that's, that's not okay. That's not what he said. Did God really say not to eat any fruit in the garden? Notice his accusation against God. God, God doesn't really want you to abstain from everything in this world, does he? God doesn't, God doesn't really expect you not to enjoy anything, Right? Is everything in this world really not good for you? We can hear the voices of the people that we know. Oh, you Christian, you're wasting your life. Why would God have you restrict yourselves from such good, pleasurable, desirable things? Oh, he doesn't want you to have any fun. Eh? It's just the lies of the enemy coming through different mouths. The enemy says, God really didn't told you you couldn't eat any of it? This is why many people aren't Christians today. They think that God just wants to take away from them the good things that they enjoy, and it's deception. And Eve is a good theologian. Eve comes back against the lies of the enemy and says, no, that's not it. We can eat anything in this garden, all of the fruit from all of the trees in the garden, except for the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Not even to touch it, lest we die. Now, that's a little fun addition that Eve makes, right? God didn't tell them not to touch it. said not to eat it. And this is why I think that happened. Because Eve wasn't there for God's command. Do you know this? Eve wasn't there when God told Adam not to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. She only knows it through Adam's mouth. And so I imagine that Eve is being escorted through the garden by her husband looking at all the beautiful things. And, and Adam's like, look at this. This is amazing. Look at all these beautiful things that God gave us to eat and to, and to delight in. And then Eve goes, well, what's that right, right there? And he goes, oh, that's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We're not supposed to eat that. And then Eve goes, why? Because God said not to. Why did he say not to? I, I, don't, I don't know, because it's wrong. What's wrong? And at this point, Adam just goes, you know what? Just stay away from it, Eve. Don't touch it. You'll die. <laughs> You've had conversations like this with your spouse or with your children. This is Adam's first sin. It wasn't eating the fruit. It was lying to his wife. <laughs> and so Eve responds to the serpent. No, he didn't say that we couldn't eat any of the fruit. In the garden, he told us not to eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, lest we die. And Satan says, you will not die. God doesn't want you to eat it because he knows that when you do, you'll become like God. This is the second deception, right? God, first one, God doesn't want you to be happy. 
Second one, God doesn't want you to be what you could be. God doesn't want you to be all that you are. See, he ignores the fact that she was already like God. She was made in God's image. That's the tragedy of the fall. They were already like God, as much like God as they could ever be, as a created being could ever be. But a desire to be more like God, they disobeyed God, and now we live like animals. They're already like God. He says, God is holding out on you. You could be something so much more. You could be something so much greater than God has made you. And we hear this through other mouths of people in our lives. Not just you could have so much more fun, but you could be so much greater than you are if you didn't give so much time to the church, if you didn't give so much time to worship. Did you know that Sunday mornings are a day when people do lots of things outside of this? You could be so much greater than you are. Then check this out. Genesis 3, 6 says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, desire of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, desire of the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, the pride of life, making something of yourself, she took of its fruit and she ate. See what God had made good in order to glorify himself, humans have used for their own desires. Even the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil It was wrong for them to eat it, but that doesn't mean that the tree or its fruit were bad. It doesn't mean that they were were bad. The fruit accomplished glory for God as the humans obeyed God and abstained from the fruit. It was made good in the fact that it was placed there for a reason, so that creation would see that God is good and worth obeying but they used what God had made good to glorify him and they took of it and ate of it in order to bring glory to themselves. See, every day, the things of our flesh, the the, the things that our flesh desires, the, the desire to possess all that we can see and the craving to make a name for ourselves in this world causes us to do the same. We believe the lie of the serpent, that God is holding out on us, that God doesn't want us to have good things, that God doesn't have your best interest in mind. And so we should give ourselves to the things of this world. They are the things that will truly satisfy and so cast off God's authority over you and make a name for yourself. Live the good life apart from God. This is what John means when he says, do not love the world. He says, do not treat the world like this. Do not pursue the things of the world in this way. Do not go after the good things that the world provides in a manner that is for your glory and not for God's glory. Do not replace the creator with created things. Do not love the world because the things in this world can never satisfy. The things in this world, the good things in the world, the things in the world that your body needs, 
right, will never satisfy us the way they were meant to satisfy us if we use them to satisfy ourselves apart from God. They won't work. They won't give you what you want. doesn't matter what magazine or what TV show or what friend tells you otherwise. It's not going to work. You'll always end up hungrier. You'll always end up more desperate. You will always end up emptier. And so this is the dichotomy in John, right? John loves the dichotomy. There's light and dark and love and hate. And in this passage, it's you cannot love God and love the world. The two are diametrically opposed to one another because sin and Satan and the deception in our own hearts, because of all of this working together, the world is bent on rebellion against God. And so when John talks about the world, he's not talking about just the physical world. He's talking about the way the world works, right? We do this too, right? Um, Think to your, your, your childhood, the family that you grew up in. There were certain things that your family did. Um, just like all families, there's good things that are in your family, and there's bad things that are in your family. And the bad things in our family, we often will justify by saying, oh, that's just, that's just my family, though. Like, we'll talk to other people, and they go, why does your family do this? And you're like, that's just my family. Right, So um, in my house growing up, you knew that my dad liked you if he made fun of you. I had friends that were like, would make fun of my friends that my dad made fun of and say, ha, 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 Bob makes fun of you. And I would go, ha, 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 my dad doesn't like you. That's, that's why he doesn't make fun of you. He, 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 if he did like you, he would make fun of you. And so I grew up in a world where you just, you, you like made fun of your friends. You did that. That was like camaraderie. It was in that, you know? And then I married my wife and I realized that this is not going to fly. <laughs> and so when we talk about this, sometimes we'll say, oh, that's just my family, right? That's just the way my family operates. That's our MO. That's what you can expect when you're around us. Do not love the world. Do not love the world because the way the world operates, what you can expect from the world is, is people and an, and an order of operation that seeks to glorify self at the expense of the one who made it. Do not love the world. To be friends with the world is to cultivate and encourage and empower the enemy of our king. To take what God has made and use it to glorify ourselves is perpetuating a system in the world that is anti-God. And so reality carp, don't love the world. See, at best, it's, it's, it's temporary. But the world is passing away and the things in the world are passing away. But at worst, it's loving the world is allegiance to the serpent in the garden, allegiance to God's enemy. Then how do we break the chains then? How do we break the chains of our affection for the things in this world? If we're not permitted to hate the world, right? Because that's the other thing that we could go the way of the Gnostics and go, do not love the world. Okay, I just need to hate the world. All the good things in the world, I hate you, apple. The actual fruit, not the, not the, com not the company. Right, you can you hate whatever company you want. I don't know, but the fruit is good. 
It's good. It's delicious. It's not to hate the good things in the world. And if we're not permitted to hate the things in the world and despise the good things that God has made for us, then how do we live in the world and enjoy the things in the world in a manner that glorifies God without us being of the world? How do we receive the good things in the world without loving the way the world works and operates, without allowing the things of the world to penetrate our hearts and distort our love for God? It's not as simple as just rejecting the world. It's not as simple as just all things in moderation. It's not that simple. It's not, it's not as simple as diving headlong into the pleasures of the world and just going, I'm just not going to think about it. I'm just going to do everything I want and let God sort it out later. Right? The world is so full of sin and corruption that John says that Jesus had to die to provide a shelter for us from God's wrath. We can't just keep pursuing things that, 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 that required Jesus to die so that we would be saved from so we have to come back to the question that we asked previously. Why are we commanded not to love the world when John says in his gospel that God, for God so loved the world? How is it a sin for us and righteous for him? And the answer is not, uh, it lies not in, in, in the world or the things of the world, but it's the desires of our hearts. It's the desires of our hearts. Our love for this world is sin when it is rooted in the desire to satisfy ourselves and sacrifice God. Our desires, our love for the world is sin when it is rooted in the desire to satisfy ourselves and sacrifice God. To have all that we crave, to possess all that we see, to glory in all that we are and all that we have accomplished. This is sin because we, just like Adam and Eve, we've deposed God from his throne in our lives and have exalted ourselves when we look for our satisfaction, when we look for our glory in those things apart from God. Our love for this world is sin when it is rooted in the desire to satisfy ourselves and sacrifice God. But God's love for this world is righteous because it is rooted in the desire to save the world by sacrificing himself. See, we, our love for the world is self-satisfying and consumeristic, but God's love for the world is self-sacrificial and redemptive. It's two very different things. The scriptures teach that our sin, in our sin, humans so loved the world that we took from the world and gave to ourselves all that the world had to offer so that we might experience all that life has to offer. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The love that God has for us and for this world is redemptive. The love that we have consumes us and we lose ourselves in the world. But God's love for you calls you out of deception. God's love for you calls you out of the destruction that this world is bent toward, the dystopian end that will come to this world. And it calls us into life with God and eternity in the new heavens and the new earth and eternity in paradise with God, a restoration of the Garden of Eden. God is bringing us back to the Garden of Eden where the world was full of delights and no sorrow and no death and no sadness and no pain and no sin. 
God's love for the world restores the world. Our love for the world does exactly what we've done to it. Just terrorize it. And so how do we seek to not love the world? It's not as easy as hating it. We can't just do that. How do we seek to love the world less? We don't respond by hating it. We don't respond by rejecting it. The way to combat unrighteous desire is not to focus on your desire and try to tamp it down. It's like telling someone, don't think of the color blue. You're all thinking of blue now. It's not as easy as just saying, don't desire that thing and telling yourself, okay, don't desire it, don't desire it, don't desire it, don't desire it. But often that's how we combat sin and temptation. We just keep telling ourselves, don't desire it, don't desire it, don't desire it, don't desire it. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work to do that. See, the way that we combat the unrighteous desire is to receive a greater desire to receive a greater desire. We will see our love for the world fade as we experience the love of God increasing in us. Now that might be easy to say, but how do we do that? How do we fan into flame our own love for God? How do we cultivate a love for God that will make the desires for the things in this world fade away? The way we cultivate greater love for God and quench our love for this world is not by loving the world less, but by receiving more of God's love for us, receiving that all that God has for you, receiving that he has so much more, that he loves you so much that he sent his own son to die for you. The way that we cultivate that love in our hearts is by reflecting on and receiving and resting in the love that God has for you. Because Jesus said, who has, he, he who has been forgiven little loves little. And the inverse is true, that he who has been forgiven much loves much. So how do we cultivate love in our hearts? Recognize what Jesus has done to forgive you of your sin. This is why we talk about repentance. This is why we talk about confession of sin. This is why we talk about living in the light. Not because we want to know all your dirty little secrets. Not because we want to shame or humiliate you. But by bringing your sin into the light, by confessing it to God, by repenting of it, you experience the grace that God has for you over that sin, the work that Jesus has done for you to accomplish salvation. And when you see the blood of Christ applied to that thing in your life and experience the loving grace and forgiveness and of, of that sin, and you encounter the love and grace and beauty of God in that moment, your love and gratitude for the one that dies for you, not just generally, but specifically for that sin, that thing that you're wrestling with, that thing that you've been wrestling with, maybe for years, maybe it's a new temptation, maybe it's a new fascination in your life, a new relationship, a new difficulty, whatever it is, 
Jesus didn't just die for you generally. He did, yes, but he died for your sins specifically. That one thing that you're afraid to bring into the light, maybe the dozen things that you're afraid to bring into the light, he died for that. And as it remains in the darkness, it remains in a place where you're not encountering the love and grace and forgiveness of God. But when you bring it into the light, when you confess it to God, then God's love covers it. The blood of Jesus covers it. You experience that forgiveness. You experience that you've been forgiven much and he who has been forgiven much loves much. The way that we grow in our love for God is to rest in his love for us by experiencing what he has done for us in his love. And it shifts our desire off of what our flesh craves, off of what our eyes crave, off uh, off of what the, the glory that we desire in this world. And it shifts it from that and on to Jesus. And so no matter how we experience the world or experience the good things in God's creation, when Jesus is all that our hearts desire, when he is all that we delight in, when Jesus is all that we are and all that we see and all that we have and all that we want, then God's creation once again becomes the signpost that it was created to be. See, when you glory in Jesus, when you desire Jesus, when he is your goal, when he is your all in all, it puts us back under a right relationship with our creator and it puts us back into a right relationship with the rest of creation. See, when you use creation to glorify yourself, you actually live like animals, just constantly feeding your instincts. But when we are put back into a right relationship with God, and when we have a right relationship with creation, then we use the good things of creation to glorify God. And when we glorify God, that is when we live truly human. When we live not as as slaves to the desires of the world, but as we live as those who have been given the authority by God to rule and subdue the world. That doesn't mean destroy the world. It means cultivate it. It means love it. It means being a steward of it, being a servant of it, and watching it flourish. And so when we receive a right relationship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, We are now given a right relationship with the rest of creation. And the beautiful thing about the right relationship of the rest of creation means we can actually enjoy creation the way we are meant to enjoy it. It doesn't mean that it serves us, but we serve it and it glorifies God. And so food tastes better when you do it not under condemnation. A meal is awesome when it's not your last meal, right? Food tastes better. Relationships are more satisfying. Sunshine gets warmer. Like it's this thing that just changes when you can actually enjoy your day without the cloud of condemnation for your sin over you. You can, you can try to avoid thinking about the thing that your sin deserves and just distracting yourself with the things of the world. But it'd be a lot better if you just acknowledged what's in your life, received grace for it, and then eat the apple. Enjoy it. Listen to music. Do whatever you do to delight in creation because now it serves not to glorify you, not to satisfy you, but to give glory to the God who made you and it for you to enjoy. It completely sets us free. 
It completely sets us free to experience the goodness, not our goodness, not even the world's goodness, but to experience the goodness and grace and glory of the God who saves, the God who transforms, the God who has given us good gifts. So whatever we experience in the world, we can experience it in loving obedience to the will of the Father and escape the fate of the world and everything in it. And by receiving the everlasting life that Jesus has purchased for us by his blood. Jesus wants you to enjoy the world for his glory. Don't love it. Don't treat it like it exists for your glory. But in whatever you find to do, whether eating or drinking, do it for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we give you all glory and honor and praise. Lord, all thanksgiving that we have for the beautiful things, the delicious things, the good things in this world, we say thank you for making them. Thank you for giving them. And God, we just want to live our lives uh, glorifying you in the way that we receive and enjoy the beautiful things in this world, Lord. And so God, those ways that we are tempted to use this world that you have made for, your own, for our own glory, would you forgive us, God? Would you forgive us when we try to make something that's supposed to point to you, point to us instead? And God, now as we worship, we pray that you would stir our hearts up. God, to, to be honest with you, to experience your grace, to encounter your forgiveness, to experience the blood of Christ being poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, those sins that are in the dark, those sins that we are tormented by. God, would you cover it with your grace? And would it cause us to well up in love for our Savior? Lord, we love because you first loved us. Pray that we would experience your love today and trust in your love today. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.